0: You're listening to the E.M. Ottawa Podcast. And we're back with the E.M. Ottawa Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Look, you're all smart people. You read the show description. You know what you clicked on. This is part two, okay? This is part two of anaphylaxis. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first and then come back, meet me right here, We'll do part two together. But before we get to that, I do want to let you know about an event that's happening in February. It's the Ottawa POCUS Symposium. This is going to be on February 11th. That's 2022. Going to be a full day of lots of fun ultrasound learning with some of the best instructors uh, this side of Vancouver. We're going to be covering lots of topics, everything from basic to advanced cardiac, renal, biliary, DVTs, regional anesthesia, and MSK, including arthrocentesis. And we're even going to have some a setup for practicing some critical care scenarios using our sim center and simulation cases. It's going to be a lot of fun. Go check out the at Ottawa POCUS Twitter site and uh, to get some information about how to sign up for that there's a little advantage to doing it early. So if you do it before Christmas, you're going to save some bucks. So it's a, a good idea. Go check that out right now. At Ottawa Pocus. Okay, where were we? Anaphylaxis. Right, we just finished a bunch of stuff about therapies. Let's talk a little bit about monitoring times. Now, even if you feel really comfortable about how to manage anaphylaxis, you're going to stick with your usual cocktail. There's a real argument to be made for healthcare resource utilization and how long a patient needs to take up a monitored or critical care bed in your emergency department for monitoring for anaphylaxis. Graham, what can you tell us about recommendations for duration of monitoring for this disease process?
1: So when it comes to monitoring in the emergency department, there is wide variation of what is perceived mandatory or even needed time observation within the literature and there's really no clear consensus regarding how long someone should uh, remain in the emergency department to be observed after they've had an anaphylaxis episode and and this really does range from something even as short as less than two hours to as long as 24 Uh, but what is accepted is that any anaphylactic patient does require some sort of observation uh, to detect and take action against any refractory or biphasic reaction. Uh, The major theme, however, is I think we can start moving away from just arbitrarily choosing times for observation and begin to risk stratify our patients to determine who actually requires an extended observation time and who uh, may actually only require uh, a short period of uh, an asymptomatic period. Uh, before being sent home.
0: Yeah, that's a very intuitive and intellectually appealing idea. Where, where does this suggestion come
1: from? In 2019, uh, Kim et al. actually tried to establish a, a, pr- a practical observation time to detect biphasic reactions. And when they looked at this and they pooled the negative predictive values um, at different time intervals specifically at one hour, six hour, 48 hours uh, and more, every extension of observation time beyond one hour only increased the negative predictive value for observing a biphasic reaction by 1% in the ED. And so what this study brought into question was whether or not we really need to be extending the observation time for low risk patients um, and whether it's really giving us that, that bang for our buck. And so when you looked at the most recent 2020 review, what really came about was that we were were able to see that high risk patients, uh, so those that have the, the multiple epinephrine doses, severe anaphylaxis or any of those risk factors that we talked about, then an extended observation for upwards of six hours or longer seems to be reasonable. However, those without any of those high risk factors it may be reasonable to discharge them after a one to two hour asymptomatic period. But right now, there's not enough evidence to, to really go all cowboy on this. Um, and really, I think we continue to have to follow our institutional policies. But I do think moving forward, risk stratifying our patients to determine their observation time is, is coming down the pipe.
0: Yeah, I totally buy what you're saying, but you there was a very specific qualifying in word in there that I want to explore a little bit. You said the low-risk patients one to two hours after they're asymptomatic. So I personally have trouble sometimes telling when a patient is truly asymptomatic after an episode that is labeled as anaphylaxis. You have people, they have that little slight tickle in their throat or some tightness in their throat. Is that person asymptomatic? You know, can I send that person home? Yeah, Derek, what do you
2: think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good point, right? Because, you know, the people start to pay attention to their symptoms, and they pay hyper attention to their symptoms, and they can like feel their stomachs growling, they can feel everything going, they can feel the tingling in their fingertips, um, and you know what is truly asymptomatic, and, and it's if you've given epinephrine and they don't have any objective symptoms. I think that that's it, right? The second consideration would be like cost effectiveness, right? So like when you're thinking of the cost effectiveness of, of, of extended observation, like it would be insane to try and justify the cost of, of observing patients for a prolonged period in a in an in a extremely resource-strapped environment like the eMERGE.
0: Yeah. So in your opinion, as someone who is living in the subspecialist world, what do you think are some of the factors that maybe we need to think about when considering duration and monitoring for this disease?
2: Yeah, so specifically in the guidelines, it talks about, you know, uh, greater risk factors for anaphylaxis fatality being, you know, cardiovascular comorbidities, lack of access to epinephrine, lack of emergency medical services, EMS, poor self-management skills. Uh, and those patients, it recommends uh, an, an extended observation period and even hospital admission because... One of the problems about discharging patients easily, um, let's say let's say take a younger population, and this is the patients that actually die from anaphylaxis, right? The patients that are you know in their twenties or thirties, you know, the second third decade of life, or they're getting away from home, they're going to college, they have a peanut allergy, you know, if they come in, they get anaphylaxis, they go home right away. It doesn't necessarily kick in that this was a big deal, this was a life threatening event. They could have died from this, you know. We do need to really drill it into these patients that have true allergies. The importance of avoidance of these medications and or or food, uh, and and treating their symptoms promptly, right, and and not kind of downplaying the severity of their reaction, because that's when you get risk of patients not carrying their epinephrine auto injector. They're they're kind of going about their business or or eating foods and high risk behaviors, which can end in mortality and which would be absolutely tragic.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Now, you did use an interesting expression there. You said true allergy. While we have you here, what are some anaphylaxis mimics that the eMERGE doc should be aware of? And I totally get that this is probably something that's hard to contextualize for the have to act now, have to make a decision in the eMERGE context. But I would like to hear, are are there things that should be on the differential that maybe we're not thinking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that, that you know, we see a lot of, and, and, and chronic urticaria is is exceptionally common, as is, you know, chronic urticaria without the urticaria, so just the angioedema piece. Um, you know, responsive to antihistamines, patients can present very similarly to, to anaphylaxis, especially if they're having any of these episodes in their face, um, as, as that's quite worrisome as, you know, potentially involving the you know, oropharynx, etc. So, you know, I always like to kind of mention about some of the kind of common mimics that you'd see from an anaphylaxis standpoint and getting a history of dermatographism or patients that have chronic urticaria, like, oh, I get hives quite often and they come and go and then they go away with antihistamines and, but then then they get a different one around their face and then they have a panic attack and then they come in, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, those are patients that you might be able to treat with antihistamines alone if they're not having Definition of anaphylaxis. They didn't have any ingestions. There's no high risk foods or, or or medications that they were given that are that are concerning. Um, and then the other big category is vocal cord dysfunction. And these are these are patients that you know oftentimes they have labeled allergies of perfumes or you know these things that come up. And and then they get you know paradoxical closing of their vocal cords is quite impressive. They, they they present with significant wheezing when they're exposed to something. They often have stories of them getting six or seven doses of epinephrine. They've, you know, been rushed to the emergency department and, and, and intubated on multiple occasions. These are, these are patients that you have to kind of watch and see if you can settle them down from a, from a breathing standpoint, right? So just kind of box breathing and these types of things. But this is obviously easier said than done. This would be kind of one of those things that you, you, you've given someone a few doses of epinephrine or you give them more than one and they haven't gotten any better. You know, epinephrine works very well if it's given appropriately to the right disease, So if you're not, if it's not working and the person's not on beta blockers and frail and cardiovascular disease and doesn't have a reason for it not working, they should question the diagnosis, you know.
0: Okay. I'm going to keep that in the middle of my mind. So not the very front, not the very back. There are some potential anaphylaxis mimics. It will be hard to not pull the trigger on epi in the moment, but I think you're giving some specific scenarios that at least you can think about. You mentioned an interesting interesting one just then, the perfume allergy thing. Is anaphylaxis to perfume is that a real thing?
2: Yeah, so it's so it's it's not actually anaphylaxis. It's like vocal cord dysfunction. So so basically anaphylaxis we're basically talking about, you know, crosslinking IgE and mast cell degranulation and then the whole process that gets triggered by that, right? Patients with perfumes, these are kind of aromatic rings that that are not something that can cross-link IgE and it's not actually absorbed into the bloodstream. It's patients that are kind of getting these um, sensitivity reactions where their vocal cords are closing and and, and they can breathe through it. It's something that you refer to kind of a speech language pathologist and they kind of do box breathing and, and things like that. And it can settle things down from that perspective, but it's quite debilitating and they don't mean to do it. It's not like they're faking it. It's not like, oh, this is someone who's trying to get attention. It's like, kind of like the non-epileptic seizures where they're having these reactions but they they can't control it it's it's a similar type of entity where patients will be like extremely stridorous. they can't breathe they, it's very scary oftentimes you know you you know the odd patient will also have dermatographism they'll start scratching themselves and they'll get hives everywhere so then they come to the emergency department they got strider and hives and that's a terrible combination so you so they get treated very aggressively and it's just something to kind of keep in the back of your mind that it is an entity it's not an ige mediated anaphylaxis syndrome
0: my god man you are not making my life any easier with these diagnoses and what was the other one you mentioned the uh, idiopathic anaphylaxis what do i need to know about that
2: it's just to know that like idiopathic anaphylaxis is an entity so like if you guys are taking your history and there's no clear trigger and it doesn't make any sense to you that's okay Um, There is other kind of entities like mastocytosis. There's just idiopathic anaphylaxis, which is like a, a subset of patients, right? That we just never find out what's going on. And, you know, we're starting to kind of find more and more triggers for this and 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 one of the one of the more one of the things that's come up recently is alpha gal and i don't know if you guys have ever heard of that
0: i have not heard of alpha gal no I haven't, I haven't heard it, of it sounds like a superhero to be completely honest but uh, yeah
2: alpha gal is, is kind of a cool disease that's that's kind of a it's, it's a lone star tick bite that causes uh delayed anaphylaxis to red meat um, so patients will often have anaphylaxis that'll wake them up in the night. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, they, they didn't eat anything in several hours. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, an alpha gal allergy that develops. Uh, and it's a, it's a, from, from, uh, from a lone star tick and they're actually in Canada now. So it's something that you could see potentially in the future.
0: I wish you could see the look on my face right now. Just like that is, that is so wild. I'm going to start. So I have to ask patients now. And by the way, we just did an episode on tick-borne illness like last week with Mickey McGinty. Did you guys talk Um, about it? We did not talk about it. No one knows about this. Get out of town. This This is is a thing. This
2: is a real thing. This is not a made-up thing or a fringe thing. This is a real thing.
0: A real entity that, like, I guess uh, maybe it sounds made up to me because we have not lived in an area with endemic lone star ticks until I, I suppose recently. You know, do I need to start asking my query anaphylaxis patients if they had both a tick and red meat exposure in that order at some point? Is that something I should keep in my radar?
2: No, I don't. I don't think it's high yield enough yet. But uh, but it's something kind of like it'd be one of those things you'd pull out of your hat and and, and present it at case rounds or something. Right yeah,
0: okay, now. I'll keep that in mind. I'll start uh, quizzing the uh, the senior residents when I work with them. All right. To round things up, we're in the home stretch. I want to talk a little bit about counseling the patient on discharge with respect to anaphylaxis and follow-up. Derek, is there any downside to mentioning the diagnosis, or maybe I'll exaggerate a little bit, to giving someone an incorrect diagnosis of anaphylaxis on discharge from the emergency department? Mm -hmm. You've seen lots of these people in follow-up. Is there something that we need to know about that they go through?
2: Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, it goes to say, like, when we see these patients afterwards, uh, the importance of your role as, as emergency physicians and, and, and the, you know, extreme respect that you guys deserve and, and that you guys get from patients as far as the diagnosis that you give them in eMERGE. Um, even though, you know, oftentimes it's a busy shift and you see them quickly and, and, you, and, you, and whatever you tell them as they're leaving, you know, that sticks with them. And then they come to the allergist office and, you know, we're seeing them bright eyed and bushy-tailed, and we have all the time to be able to spend with the patient. And, and it doesn't matter what we tell them, whatever was told to them in the emergency department is the truth. And whatever they got there is the best treatment. And uh, oftentimes it's very hard to convince someone otherwise, right? So, When you're unsure about what exactly happened, it's okay to tell them that. You don't have to have all the answers at that time, at that moment. You can tell them that, you know, something happened to you. It seems like it was an anaphylactic reaction. We're not really sure. We'll send you to an allergist and they'll they'll sort it out. Yeah. Um, I think that's a fair way of approaching things. Uh, You give them an epinephrine auto-injector and you teach them how to use it. And you say, if it happens again, use it and come back.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell that story you told me earlier about the epinephrine allergy?
2: Yeah. I seen a guy the other day that that had anaphylaxis to epinephrine. Um, And he got epinephrine had a vasovagal episode and someone misdiagnosed him as having anaphylaxis. And they said, oh, you can't have epinephrine. So then he avoided all vaccines throughout his entire life. Because every time he went to get a vaccine, they asked if he had allergies and he said he had allergy to a- epinephrine. And it finally came out when the COVID vaccine came out and they finally got a referral to allergy. But like this, like the things you guys say matter so much and, and, the, and the respect that they have for the eMERGE doctor, uh, rightfully so. And, and the words that you use, they stick with them for life. So, so just to kind of uh, stress the importance of, of vocabulary and exactly what you say to patients. There's a lot of odd things that happen, and medicine is very humbling. So if, you, if if it doesn't really make sense, it's okay to say that it doesn't make sense, and then refer it on. Yeah, yeah,
0: no kidding. That's a that's a good thing to keep in mind for all of medicine, not just anaphylaxis,
2: to be completely honest.
0: And lastly, on that communication piece, do you think there's things that we're missing in our discharge instructions to anaphylaxis patients?
2: Not really. I think that you guys do an excellent job. I think for the most part, you know, you know, patients uh, get prescribed an epinephrine auto injector at discharge. Um, and I think that your your threshold for prescribing an epinephrine auto injector should be and is extremely low, right? If someone carries an epinephrine auto injector until they see their allergist, and then we tell them they don't need to carry it anymore. That's okay. If you if they've had something that seems to you like it was an anaphylactic episode, and they got epinephrine and emerged, it certainly makes sense to give them that, and then uh, we can assess things down the road and, and kind of determine if they need to keep it or not. There's specific guidelines on you know, idiopathic anaphylaxis and how long you need to, to to watch someone with an epinephrine pen. But I think that just being clear about reasons to come back, reasons to give yourself epinephrine, and then connecting them with an allergist that can help kind of determine avoiding the strategies, or in immunotherapy, or you know uh, other options for the patient moving forward from an investigation standpoint.
0: And do all patients need an allergy immunology referral? Like even if the clinical scenario seems slam dunk, and I, I'm personally going to be a lot more humble about this uh, in the future. But um, you know, even if it seems like a slam dunk, do, does everyone need to be seen by a specialist?
2: I, I actually do think that, that 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 it's a it's a it's an important uh, step in in the patient's care plan to have them assessed by an allergist. And I know that it's difficult and in certain. Um, areas, allergists are hard to come by and the waiting list is long. I know that in some places it's like 24 months to see an allergist and, and hopefully that as we train more, trainees and and, uh, and 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 become more accessible to patients that we'd be able to play a larger role in in, in their lives and and be able to kind of emphasize different treatment modalities different investigations and uh, you know be able to kind of do perform some teaching for the patients about you know avoiding strategies because things have changed quite rapidly and things are always changing as we gain more knowledge as we gain more insight as research continues to be done so so I think that you know uh, the field is, is is quickly moving and it's it's never a bad thing to have them seen by a specialist.
1: The one thing I would say uh, about the referral process, as a merge docs, it's having an anaphylaxis case is actually kind of awesome, because it's very easy to treat, you can continue seeing other patients, and you know your discharge instructions are gonna be given by the the nurse, and they're gonna have all this fantastic follow-up and things like that, but sometimes we forget that these patients are being diagnosed with something that is going to affect them on a day-to-day basis that they're going to go home and have to potentially avoid certain foods for example and wait until they see this allergist who can provide the reassurance and the education that uh, they may not necessarily fully get due to the time constraints in emerge. And so I think a referral is actually very beneficial because it provides that reassurance and may even help with some of the anxiety that comes with that new diagnosis that they have to sit at home with and not really have any additional supports with so i think getting that allergy referral is, is super important you don't have to use that by the way i just
2: i actually like that better than mine <laughs> so so i think <laughs>
0: Uh, guys, I got to tell you, I learned so much about a disease that I thought I knew down cold. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having us, Rajiv.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. I mean, it was really great to hear you guys' insight. And I mean, Graham's obviously done a ton of, uh, of research on this topic, so it's, uh, it's great to see.
0: You know what? It's occurring to me now. I don't know if I've ever met an allergist or immunologist before. So this was uh, just a novel situation all around. I want to thank doctors Graham Wilson and Derek Lanoue for making time to be with us on the show today. If you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to the emottawablog.com. Thanks to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro right now, and all those little bits in between. And if you've got something you want to hear about on the show, or if you've got a case or a topic you want to talk about, please get in touch. You can always follow and message me on Twitter. That's at Rajiv Tava, R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Catch you again on the next episode.
2: You got to trust me. It's like, you know, we
0: monitored you for four hours. And, you know, if you get worse, by all means, like, come back. Then I haven't got a bounce back email saying they came back within 72 hours or a week or what have you, right? Yeah. I mean, if they uh, died
2: and they came back, at least you'd get a case report out of it. Yeah,
0: that's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, yeah, you know, the, the academic ladder is a steep one.